You are now listening to the October 6th broadcast of Unity in Christ. In this hour, we have the attributes of God, walking our talk, and grace upon grace. First, let's begin with the attributes of God. This program will examine how we can learn about who God is, His character, and His nature by discovering His attributes. Hello everyone, this is Susan Holtgrew, your host for the new program we are beginning this week. I want to ask you a question and take a moment to really think about it. How well do you know God? Maybe you want to develop a deeper relationship with God, but you just don't know how to get to know Him. You can know about God because God has chosen to give us a revelation about Himself. He reveals Himself through nature, the grand design of all living things, through conscience, knowing right from wrong, and through the Word of God. Scripture is inspired by God. In Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24, the Lord says, But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord, God wants us to have a relationship with Him, and through Christ, we can develop a deep, meaningful relationship with Him. Then how do we get to know God? We can learn about who God is, His character, and His nature by discovering His attributes. God is like a multifaceted diamond. Each cut and side shows a different part of who He is and in our new program series, we will be learning about the attributes of God. I will be referencing a pamphlet titled Attributes of God by Rose Publishing. There are two different ways we can categorize God's attributes. There are attributes that belong to Him alone, and there are those that He shares with us. Because we are made in His image. In God, not one attribute is more important than the other. Each is unique and equally important. The first set of attributes is called incommunicable, and these are the ones that only God has. They are triune, one, transcendent, infinite, eternal, creator, sovereign, omnipresent or omnipresent, immutable, omniscient, and omnipotent, or omnipotent. The second kind of attributes is called communicable, and these are the ones that he shares with us. They are loving, holy, good, just, jealous, merciful, patient, faithful, truthful, and spirit. I know there are several words in these lists that might not be familiar to you, but we will be discussing each one of these in the weeks ahead. And by the end of the program series, you will have a much better understanding of these words and who God is. By learning the attributes of God, 
they will provide for us a type of window through which we can see him a little more clearly and meditate on who he is. As we contemplate and learn about each character of God, we will begin to understand the glorious, loving, awe-inspiring, and holy person that he is, and who is the only one worthy of our allegiance and praise. Jesus modeled these characteristics in his life and ministry while he was here, and by learning what they mean and how they apply to our lives, we can grow in our faith by being imitators of God and have a much deeper and more intimate relationship with Him. This ends our program for today. I look forward to sharing the first attribute of God next week. God bless you all. Goodbye.
can hardly think as you call me deeper still as you call me deeper still as you call me deeper still Coming up next is the podcast series, Walking Our Talk. We will be studying the book, Learning How to Trust. Through true life stories and God's word, you will learn how to regain your emotional, physical, and spiritual well-being, and how to rebuild broken relationships. You will also learn five keys to regaining your trust in God and others. Now let's hear from Alan Heller. Polly Heller, and Ed Delf, and begin our study, Learning How to Trust God. Welcome to Walking Our Talk with Alan Heller. I'm Dustin Daniels, and in the studio with me today, Alan Heller, obviously. Hey, Alan. <laughs> hey, good to see you, Dustin. Polly Heller, hello. hello. And Hi. Ed Delf. Hello there. How are you? Doing? I'm doing good. I'm excited to talk to you guys today. We're going to be talking about trust and with our first podcast here, let me just give our listeners a little bit of background about you guys. Alan and, and Polly, you guys are co-authors of two books, Learning How to Trust with Ed Delf, and then the Marital Mystery Tour. Alan graduated from Phoenix Seminary with a degree in marriage and family counseling. You've been a personal life coach and a marriage counselor for over 35 years. Uh, he is the founder and the president of Walk and Talk, a ministry of connecting people to God and each other since 1991. Polly Heller, former copy editor at Arizona Highways Magazine, instinctively copy edits everything from <laughs> restaurant menus to Alan's behavior. Oh, yeah. I am so That's sorry it. to hear that, Polly. Man, Can't alive. Help it. Can't help it. More Reddington Blue. Yeah. <laughs> well, the Hellers have presented in seminars in cities across the U.S., along with Thailand and Nepal. And uh, losing their oldest son, Josh, to cancer in 2010 has reshaped and broadened their ministry life in unforeseen ways. They've been married for 43 years and have two surviving adult children, 
and four of the world's brightest and cutest grandchildren. Oh, yeah. I don't <laughs> have those. I thought I had those. You know, you and share the wealth. Doesn't everybody say that? Yeah, I think everybody so. Does. Uh, Dr. Ed Delph is here. He has authored 10 books and uh, been a weekly columnist in newspapers worldwide, along with being a pastor and teacher and speaking to more than 100 countries around the world. He is currently president of a worldwide ministry called Nation Strategy, a nonprofit organization involved in community and societal transformation. Ed earned his business degree from Arizona State University and his doctorate of ministry degree from Primus University. Well, we are going to be talking about trust today, guys, and, and you all have co-authored this book titled Learning to Trust. Ed, let's start with you. How did this book come to be? Well, I was a singles pastor here in Phoenix, Arizona, or Tempe, actually. I started out with uh, Grace Community Church in Tempe and then to Northwest Community Church in Phoenix. And as a single singles pastor, it was an amazing event, uh, really a turn of events for me. I sold my business that I had called Central Bindery and went into singles ministry. And um, it was in the context of singles ministry that I, let's just say, I, I, I noticed something. I would be speaking and I, would watch, I was watching all these people in this ministry. I'm a, and one of them, I had 550 people, another one, 275, watching these people, many of who were single again or who had had a terrible event happened in their life. It could have been something from their childhood. It could have been something with an authority figure. Some of them were single again, not by their own choice. I always say, you know, they, and how do you say it? They're suffering through these problems. And I noticed mm -hmm. that we, in the typical way that pastors do is we just open up the Bible and talk on the Bible and so mm -hmm. forth, and nothing was getting through. These people had so much emotional clutter that you know, no matter what you gave them, no matter what truth you gave them, it just didn't seem to get through. And so I began to think about this, and I think, what's really the problem here? The problem is that their soul's not prospering. You're going to yeah. prosper and be in good health in a whole way, mind, you know, and body, your, right? as your soul prospers, mm -hmm. your mind, will, and emotions prosper. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, that's interesting. So what's happened is their soul's not prospering, so they're not going to prosper. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, well, let's deal with these soul issues. And so I started up a series at Grace Community and further developed in Northwest in Learning How to Trust All Over Again, which is the title, the original title of our book. It's now called Learning How to Trust. But the what I found was as you took people and helped them deal with these things, these shaping events, these September 11ths in their mm. life, where their walls came tumbling down, whatever that might be. For everybody, it was, seemed like a different, even different thing, but different way, yeah, you know? Sure. And these shaping events were creating lingering influences. Let me say it again. These shaping events were creating lingering influences that were influencing their life. Uh, it didn't necessarily control their life, but mm. it strongly influenced their life and made it harder to make the right choices to get them out of the predicament that they were in or the, the mental. Those lingering influences like, are like a spiritual vampire you know, or a mental wheelchair just holding you back. And so as we began to deal with these type of things, I found that they began to open up. And then when you'd speak the word, they'd start to catch some of it, and they'd slowly start growing. But I had to take them through that process of, 
of getting them to open up. They were, it's like a sea urchin when in the ocean when you punch it in the middle. When you touch it in the middle, it just closes up. These people came in all closed up, and, you know, there was nothing going to get in there. Yeah, that's good. And then they'd meet somebody else that was just as closed up as they were, Mm. And then they try and have a relationship. <laughs> you know, that was trying to... Like, trying How's, to that? How's that work for us? <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, boy, we, you know, that's why, you know, you, there's more divorces the second time uh, than the first time because yeah. people haven't opened up yet. Mm. They haven't learned how to trust again. So this book was really, you know, how do you say an initiative or something that I found that was very practical that worked. It actually wasn't just output. There was outcome. People changed. People shifted. And they went from one level to a bigger level. So it was transformational, not just a transaction of knowledge, but a transformation of understanding and getting an aha. And then they could start to make the right steps to get back. And, Ed, you know, the thing I love about it is it's so universal. All of us have to trust. And certain ones of us have gigantic needs that get, you know, a five-year-old that I'm counseling, I mean, a 50-year-old that I'm counseling is still dealing with a five-year-old, an eight-year-old issue because they haven't been able to take care of that lingering influence in their life and uh, I appreciated you bringing us into the project and allowing uh, Polly who's edited a lot of your books and for me to be able to give some of the color of the counseling illustrations that are just a daily part of my life absolutely and make it practical and flesh out some of the things that you've been dealing with for years in terms of the people that you've dealt with. Yeah, well, I, I took the time to write the book, you mm-hmm. know, the way the way it came in their original form. And then I got looking at Polly, who's just my favorite editor, copy <laughs> editor in the world. And I thought, well, this is crazy. You know, I've got a good book here, but it's not a great book. And so Polly and I got to talk and brought Alan. Alan's mm-hmm. been doing all this counseling for all these years. And Polly's a counselor. Mm-hmm. And of course, I wanted a little bit more of a feminine uh, mm. viewpoint, too, a little softer touch. I'm kind of male. I'll go left side on them, you know, and, <laughs> and I want, we need a little right side to have balance, you know. I didn't want to be a either or. I want right. to be a both and. And so brought Alan and Polly into the project, and they just really, really did. They turned a good book into a, a really great book. You know, as you were speaking, Ed, is it more, is it harder for men or for women to trust. Ooh, that's a a great, that's a very If if you wanted it more feminine, I mean, from your perspective, you you gave Polly the the manuscript and and with her background, that's a a great blend, but I'm just thinking, who has a bigger problem of trusting? Is it me or is it my wife, you know? (laughs) Yeah, well, some of that's dependent upon personality type too, you know, what, because there's lots of women that are type a too mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and you know all of that so it kind of it depends upon the person i would say general it's a general rule well our publisher destiny image said that 90 percent of the people that read this book <laughs> will be women that's gotcha. right so right. does that say does that answer your question well i, I, th- I think, I think ju- they're a little more open yes, and i think are. men tend yeah to, we're just you know, we're going to do it my way and we're not going to trust you <laughs> self-sufficient yeah i mean i was just on the phone with a wife who just said my husband will not get help you know i'm mm-hmm. the whole problem and that's just, uh, I think, the way it is. And Adam seemed to have a little problem at the beginning <laughs> of time. You know, uh, I think it manifests differently in men and women. I think both men and women have trust issues, but... Maybe different kinds. Yeah. It comes out in a much more emotional and um, 
outward way, women are more willing to say, I, I don't I don't trust you or I'm having trust issues here, whereas men will just blame and mm-hmm. <laughs> move on. So you segment. tell me I'm either happy or angry, That's and there's right. no in-between. <laughs> I, I think of myself as a lot more calm and, uh, you know, but I don't know where you got that from. <laughs> so, Polly, is, uh, why is it so important to trust? I think if a person doesn't have trust, they can't move forward. They get very stuck. And um, I know myself that I'm a a cautious person. And Alan is an action-oriented person. And if I'm not in a place where I am trusting him, then when he's moving into action and I'm still like, wait a minute, wait a minute, I haven't, I haven't checked it all out mm-hmm. yet. I, I haven't looked at all the possibilities. I'm just in the brainstorming phase and he's moving to action. I become very fearful and it destroys our oneness as a couple if I'm not trusting him. And I finally got to the place of saying, Lord, I need to trust you with what Alan is doing. Otherwise, I'm just going to be in a constant state of anxiety and fear because I don't know what he's going to do next. And we have a good relationship. Sure. So we have a lot in common. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I just think about what it must be like for people who's who are in a relationship where their trust is repeatedly broken. Alan and I have been married for 43 years, and he has never given me one reason to doubt that he's anything but faithful to me. And I think for a person who is in a a relationship where there's been outward, flagrant breaking of trust Mm -hmm. in that relationship... Mm -hmm. It's really, really hard to get back on level ground. Yeah, you know, I think there's the horizontal issues of trust, and then there's the vertical issue of trust. Because I know when I came to know the Lord my freshman year of school, the guy who led me to the Lord said a very profound thing. He said, people will let you down, but God will never let you down. And I heard that, and then three years later, this guy had an affair with his secretary. The closest person to my conversion experience walked away from the Lord. The third person that was close to me in terms of my relationship with the Lord, she ended up going back into Mormonism. And the Lord sort of asked me a question. So are you going to trust me, who's infinite, or are you going to trust them, who are finite? And early in my Christian life, I made the decision, I'm going to trust you (laughs) because you don't change. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I can count on you. Everything else is like going to hell in a handbasket around here. Well, I I love that vertical and horizontal picture, Alan, because when you say vertical, I think of the famous verse, Proverbs 3. Mm. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Ed, how hard is it for us as finite human beings to trust the Lord with all of our heart? Well, it can be very hard depending on how much has happened to you okay and to the depth that goes but this was part of the revelation of the of the book and this is what seemed to give a lot of people a breakthrough and and that was we have to understand that 
we were born with trust. I mean, you've got a nurse, you know, that baby trusts its mother, you know, to nurse that. We were born, we have trust in us, Second Corinthians 3, 5 says, so 3, 4, and 5 say, so that, so we were born to trust. We have to trust in something. Trust is the rope that connects whatever we trust in to us, okay? So trust is like a rope. And so we were created by God to trust in the Lord and lean not on our own understanding, all our ways knowledge him, and he will guide our path. That's guidance. Trust gives guidance, okay? Mm -hmm. The result is trust is guidance. So what does the devil want to do? He wants to cut that, okay? He wants to stop that. So here's what I'm concerned with is, and we called it in the book, we call it a liar. Right. Because both uh, people who are uh, lost and found are breeding this, so we just changed that name to the liar. But the liar comes along. What's the first thing you do? He knows who you're created to trust in the Lord. He knows that's the best way we work. So what's he going to do? Get us to trust in anything but the Lord, whether it's money, whether it's another person, whether it's our feelings, blah, blah. So then we trust in that. And then, of course, that's not going to work because now we've made an idol. And so God says there'll be no other gods but me. So now you've obligated, when you're trusting something other than the Lord, you've obligated God to kill it to get it, because you'll have no other gods before him. So now that's not going to work. Then what happens is you trust in yourself, you isolate and insulate, and all those lates, you know. and uh, <laughs> Which is never a good plan. <laughs> never a good plan, okay. And now you're a rock, you're an island, you touch no one, but no one touches you. You put up a wall. Now other peoples can't get in, but the problem is you can't get out either. Okay, so now you're inside. Now basically... You're going to disappoint yourself, so now you aren't going to trust in anything or anyone. So how can you ever trust in the Lord and lean not on your own standing? You're a worm on a hook, and you will be a magnet for calamity when you're in that type of situation. It'll never stop. Wow. Ed, I, I feel like you just told my story for the first 30 years of my life. <laughs> oh, Speaking of counseling, Alan, I'll schedule that with, with you yeah. later. <laughs> well, do you feel that way too? Was Ed unknowingly sharing a part of your story. I mean, could you identify with these issues of trust that Alan, Polly, and Ed were were discussing? I'm guessing that you could. And isn't it amazing just how closely our stories are interrelated? I mean, especially when it comes to this area of trust. So let me ask you this. How exactly do we trust people? How do we trust God when we've been hurt so deeply? Well, I want to encourage you now to subscribe to this podcast. It's called Walking Our Talk with Alan Heller, and you can do that via iTunes or whatever streaming platform you choose, because next week, we're going to continue our conversation on trust, and we're going to focus on several things. Number one, how vows, judgments, and generalizations, man, how those things can just cripple you. Number two, how to move from the question of Why me to what's next? And number three, we're going to learn the five steps to regain trust. And once again, all this material is coming from their book, Learning How to Trust. To learn more, visit walkandtalk.org. There must be more than this. All breath of God, come breathe within
Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries awaits for your participation in the listener survey. Your opinion is highly valued. All gathered information will be for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries. You may participate by completing the questionnaire survey delivered to your address or online at www.heartandsoul.org. Our return address for the paper survey is P.O. Box 5459 Glendale, Arizona 85312. We await for your participation and thank you for your input. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Miter of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is, Who Do We Trust When It Comes to Heaven? He is a new pastor to our broadcast ministry, so I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill. When you talk about heaven, how can it not be? So if you're here today and you need your heart encouraged, you need hope, you want to have your faith fired up, you want to get a taste of the eternal, this sermon series is for you. It's going to be truly, truly incredible. The great German reformer Martin Luther said this, I would not give one moment of heaven for all the joy and riches of the world, even if it lasted a thousand, for thousands and thousands of years. Isn't that powerful? Oh man, think the very best this life has to offer and imagine it lasting a thousand years. Folks, that doesn't even come close to how awesome heaven is going to be. You wouldn't, if you could see what heaven is going to be like, you wouldn't trade a thousand good days uh, for just one day in heaven. That's how amazing heaven is going to be. Luther was so right. Heaven is going to be better than the very best that this world has to offer. And this sermon series is important. Here's why. Because whenever we take our eyes off of this world and we set them on the eternal, we set them on things above, our faith is changed. We, it impacts our lives. It has to because we are, it, it puts things in perspective. You know, the scriptures, I love the scripture. Psalm 90, 12, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. The Bible says that you are the grass of the field. Peter, the apostle Peter says, you're the grass of the field that is here today, gone tomorrow. Our life is but a vapor, right? It is but a vapor. We are here today and we're gone. And so as we enter this subject of heaven, we set our minds on the eternal and we're reminded that's where we're going to be for eternity. And this life is very, very short. The Bible even tells us to set our minds on things above, right? Colossians 3, 1 and 2. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, uh, things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And that's an incredible passage. Unpack that some other time. But if you're here today and you're eager to learn about heaven, there's truly no better place you could be. Just here in the church, grounded in God's word. There's no better pursuit. Now, I need to clarify something right from the beginning. And this is very, very important, okay? There are a million books and a million movies that have been published and produced on the subject of heaven. Now, many of these books and movies are centered around people who have claimed to have had near-death experiences. They have died, they have gone to heaven, they saw what heaven is like, and they came back and they told us about it. Think about it. 
Only a, a handful of men have ever set foot on the moon. No one has ever been to Mars, but apparently everybody has been to heaven and back. We call this heavenly tourism. Um, everybody's going to heaven, everybody's coming back, and everybody is telling us what it is like. So it's very important that you know where I'm coming from, where this church is coming from with regard to this particular subject. And where I'm coming from on this subject is very, very simple. And it is this. God's word is completely sufficient and totally accurate for all that we need to know about heaven in this lifetime. Amen? In other words, everything you and I need to know about heaven in this lifetime can be found in one place. That is God's word. Now, this is really good news. You know why it's really good news? It is really good news because with a million books and a million movies on the market, you can cut through everything and go right to the source that is trustworthy and true. And that is God's word. Psalm 119, 160 says, all of your words are true. All of your words are true. All of your words are true about man. All of your words are true about any subject that the Bible is talking about, but in particular, heaven. That's important to us. All of God's words God's word, when it comes to the subject of heaven, are true and trustworthy. Now, you know why this is important? Because, and this is what's truly amazing, is that many of the people that have claimed to have died and gone to heaven and have come back, they aren't even Christians. They're not even believers. One person that falls into that core category is a woman by the name of Betty J. Eady. She wrote a book many years back called Embraced by the Light. Now, remember that title. She wrote this book, Embraced by the Light. She sold tons of books and made millions of dollars. She, of course, claimed to have gone to heaven and came back. Just one problem. She's not a Christian. <laughs> Specifically, she is Mormon. And much like Joseph Smith, she claims to have uh, received a revelation from on high. Betty Eady reminds me of a man who lived in the 7th century who himself claimed to have ridden a white horse to heaven. And that man, of course, is the prophet Muhammad. Muhammad claimed to have gone to heaven and back in one night. Of course, Muhammad's teachings on heaven are really fascinating. Muhammad's teachings on heaven, it's one of a sensual paradise where believing men are rewarded by being wed to a plurality of virgins. Now, women, I got bad news for you. Conversely, women in Islam who make it to heaven will be only, they'll be wed to only one man and they will be satisfied with him. Quote, unquote, they will be satisfied with him. You only get one right? Men, you get a plurality of virgins. Now you can see this is a very sensual idea of heaven. It's appealing to the flesh. Never mind that Jesus himself said there will be no marriage in heaven. Here, the prophet Muhammad gives a very worldly, very fleshly view of heaven. More recently, a man by the name of Danian Brinkley, he wrote a book called Saved by the Light. So you have Embraced by the Light, you have Saved by the Light, you have Sunburned by the Light. I mean, there's a million different, that was a joke. There's a million different titles out there. He wrote this book called Saved by the Light, okay? He claimed to have gone to heaven and back after being struck by lightning. Now, I'm thinking the white light he saw wasn't God. It was the bolt of lightning that he claims to have been hit by, maybe. But anyway, Mr. Brinkley is not a Christian. As a matter of fact, his book is openly hostile to biblical truth. Interesting. So then, we asked this question this morning. Who can be trusted? What books should we trust? What movies should we trust? What authors should we trust? Now, this is the key of what I'm going to talk about today. So you've got to get this key. Even if we knew for certain that a person's experience of going to heaven and coming back was genuine, what you need to know, it is not necessary. It is not necessary for you and I as believers 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because we believe in what's called the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. We believe in sola scriptura, which is the Bible alone is the final source of authority, right? That sola scriptura is the Latin term that came from the reformers. The Bible is our final source of authority, but we also believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. In other words, The Bible is sufficient on no matter what subject that it is speaking on. Everything you need to know about a life, to live a godly life in this generation can be found in the scriptures. Everything you need to know about salvation and everything you need to know about the afterlife, it doesn't matter what subject we're talking about. Whatever it is you need to know on a particular subject, the Bible is sufficient to tell you that. God has not left us as his children lacking anything. By the way, this also applies to all the books and movies in which people have claimed to gone to hell and back. One of my favorite authors is Justin Peters. He wrote this, the Bible's ample objective warnings of hell make an experiential and subjective warnings wholly unnecessary, wholly unnecessary. In other words, everything you need to know about hell and that develop a sound biblical doctrine of hell can be found in the scriptures. Everything God wants you to know can be found in the scriptures. By the way, Justin Peters, he's an awesome man of God. He suffers from cerebral palsy. And he has done a ton of awesome work confronting the word of faith movement, the name it and claim it, the, you know, bring your person up on the stage and we'll heal them and throw their crutches out in the crowd, that whole thing. He's done a wonderful job on that forefront of reclaiming a lot of ground and delivering people out of that world. Anyway, here's the danger. Here is the danger, folks. Listen very carefully. The danger is that we become so eager to learn about heaven and the afterlife that we abandon the doctrine of the sufficiency of scripture and open ourselves up to people's experiences. Now, here's the deal. The Bible says this, the secret things belong to our Lord, the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Now, listen, there are some things that the Lord has not chosen to reveal to us in this lifetime. Now, the Bible talks a lot about heaven. We're going to be talking about it for eight weeks, and there's a ton that we're going to cover. But there's going to be some questions where your curiosity butts up against the edge of Scripture and you're going to go, I want to know more. What do you do when your curiosity comes to the end of what the Bible says about a particular subject? The temptation is going to go, well, I'll look elsewhere than the Bible. I will look to people's experiences. It doesn't matter who the person is. If they'll tell me about heaven, I'll listen. But here's the point. As Christians, as God's children, we have to learn to be, say it with me, content. We have to learn to be content with what God has chosen to reveal in his word about heaven. See, folks, if we let our curiosity overrun our contentment, we open ourselves up to major confusion. That's tweetable, by the way, if you want to take a picture and tweet that out. Just kidding. (laughs) That's an original. But that's so important, folks. If we let our curiosity overrun our contentment when it comes to talking about the afterlife, we open ourselves up to major confusion. One of my favorite Christian authors and theologians is Dr. John MacArthur. He said this, the limit of our curiosity is thus established by the boundary of biblical revelation. Very important. When we talk about the subject of heaven, the limit of our curiosity is thus established by the boundary of biblical revelation. This is very important to understand. You are safe, and I mean this, you are safe spiritually You are safe as long as you stay within the boundaries of scripture when talking about the afterlife or talking about heaven. You are not safe. And I'm gonna unpack this just right now, so be ready. You are not safe when you open yourselves up to people's experiences and non-biblical sources on the subject of heaven. You are not safe. So what exactly do I mean when I say that you are not safe if you let your curiosity drive you from the scriptures to people's experiences or non-biblical sources on the subject of heaven? Well, 2 Corinthians 11.14 says this, And no wonder, you guys are very familiar with this verse, 
And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Now, I want you to notice that. An angel of light. What was Mrs. Edie's, what was the title of her book? Embraced by the light. What about Mr. Brinkley? Saved by the light. Embraced by the light. Saved by the light. I got news for you. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Just because a book has a semi-cool title or Christian kind of looking title doesn't mean we should trust it. Satan is the great deceiver and he will seek. This is so important, folks. I, I can't stress this enough. Satan will seek to deceive you on any subject and every subject he can. You can pick the subject, it doesn't matter. But he will also seek to deceive you up to and including the subject of heaven. And you're going, well, what's, what's the big deal if Satan is giving us, you know, if Satan is propagating views of heaven that aren't scriptural? I mean, they're still really cool. These books and everything else are really cool. Here's why. Because if Satan can get our eyes off the scriptural view of heaven, he is now able to do all sorts of damage in a person's life. Let me give you a powerful example of what I'm talking about. There is a common theme in the biblical accounts of heaven, and that is one of absolute awe and reverence at the majesty and holiness and splendor of God, even to the point in which the people who are seeing heaven feel as though they are going to die. In other words, biblical accounts, the biblical accounts of people that we know for certain either have seen God, seen God's throne, or seen God in his glory, a radical sense of awe and fear overtake those people. Take, for example, John. John was the closest of Jesus' disciples. He was the one whom Jesus loved. Nobody was closer to Jesus in this lifetime than John. None of the disciples were. And yet when he sees heaven opened up in the book of Revelation, he writes these words. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me. Fear not, I am the first and the last. The great prophet Isaiah was overwhelmed at his unworthiness when he saw the Lord in glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. He's seeing, a, Isaiah chapter 6, he's seeing a vision of the Lord seated high and exalted on the throne. What does Isaiah say? Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Folks, only four biblical authors had visions of heaven. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Paul, and John. Now, there's two other accounts. Stephen, when he was being uh, martyred in Acts chapter 7, looked up and he saw Jesus standing, standing at the right hand of God. There's another one in the Old Testament where he saw a glimpse of heaven. But here's my point. Only four biblical authors had visions of heaven. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Paul, and John. Only three of these, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and John, later wrote about what they saw. The apostle Paul remained silent. He gave no actual description of what heaven was like. He simply said it was unlawful for him to share what he saw. All of them, all of them, properly focused on God's glory. They also mentioned their own fear and shame in the presence of such glory. They had nothing to say about the mundane features, the mundane features that are so prominent in modern tales about heaven. Things like picnics or games or juvenile attractions or odd conversations and so on. In short, the biblical descriptions of heaven could hardly be any more different from what you are seeing in the movies and reading in the books today. Take Lazarus, for example. He fell ill and died, and his body lay decaying in the tomb for four days. 
A whole chapter in John's gospel is devoted to the story of how Jesus brought him back from the dead. John chapter 11. But there is not a hint or even a whisper anywhere in scripture about what happened to Lazarus's soul in that four-day interim. The same thing is true of every person in Scripture who has been raised from the dead. Beginning with the widow's son whom Elijah raised from the dead in 1 Kings 17, culminating to the young man that Paul raised from the dead in Acts chapter 20. Not a hint of what they experienced when they died. Again, contrast these biblical accounts with the fanciful stories you see in many books that are being produced today in the movies, and the difference couldn't be any more stark. It is literally night and day. There's the recent story, you all know this book, we've all looked at it and read it and saw the movie. There's a recent story which resulted in the book and movie deal called Heaven is for Real, in which a young boy by the name of Colton Burpo claims to have gone to heaven. Colton says that in heaven he got a halo and real wings, though they were too small for his liking. He also claimed to have sat on Jesus' lap while the angels sang to him. He saw Mary standing beside Jesus' throne. He met the Holy Spirit who, according to Colton, is kind of blue. Folks, this is an example of making God according to our own imagination and heaven according to our own liking. Such a description of heaven is not biblical in any way, shape, or form. The Bible never, ever describes angels singing to us. The angels are always singing to the glory of God. Isaiah chapter 6, if you read Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah says there were angels flying before the throne of God. They had six wings. With two wings they flew, with two they covered their face, and two they covered their body. R.C. Sproul says it is as if their creatureliness could not stand the glory of God. These are the angels that were created to stand and fly and glorify God in his very presence, and they could barely handle it themselves. They fly in the presence of God, and they sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And yet Colton says the angels are in heaven singing to him. Got a problem. I got a problem with that. The Bible never describes angels as singing to people, but rather singing unto the glory of God in the most radical way possible, so much so that they have to cover their creatureliness because they can barely stand being in his presence. The Bible never speaks of people getting halo or wings. The Bible never speaks of the Holy Spirit as the color blue. Now, is it wrong to read these books and to go see these movies? No. But as, as Christians, what we do is we keep them in the category over here of, as entertainment. Okay, it's just entertainment. They're fictional stories that people have written. And if you want to go see the movie, that's great. If you want to read the book, that's great. But keep it over there as fiction and know that when you ground yourself, you ground yourself here because this thing is completely sufficient for everything that you need to know about heaven in this life and the life to come. Amen? Now, why is all this important? I said, I'm going to give you a really powerful example. Here's why. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, okay? Now listen very carefully. Satan is more than happy to give people visions of heaven that produce no fear or reverence or awe of the Lord. And I would argue that is what he has flooded the market with. He has flooded the market with movies and books and accounts of heaven that do not portray Isaiah chapter 6, do not portray the book of Revelation in which the John, the closest of all of his disciples, fell as though dead when he saw the Lord in glory. Satan is more than happy to give people visions of heaven that produce no fear, reverence, or awe of the Lord. Folks, he will give those all day long free of charge. He will give those all day long free of charge. And here's why it's so important, because when people don't fear the Lord, they end up putting their trust in a God of their own imagination who exists in a heaven of their own liking. There it is. You want to know why this subject is so important? Here's why. Because people end up putting their trust 
in a God of their own imagination who exists in a heaven of their own liking. It also give, gives millions, if not billions, of non-believers a false sense of what really happens when a person dies. You know what the scriptures say that happens when a person dies, right? Hebrews 9.27. And just as it is appointed once for man, to, uh, for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Now listen, I have no doubt. All of us know people that have had near-death experiences. At least most of us do. We know people, and they're good, trustworthy people. It's not like we don't trust them. I have no doubt that Christians and non-Christians are experiencing things at the point of death, right? All I'm saying is such experiences extremely subjective. And I would argue, based upon this verse, they're not actually... They, the people haven't actually died. They are pre-mortem experiences, not post-mortem visions. People are saying, well, I died and went to heaven. No, you didn't, because if you died and went to heaven, you'd be standing in judgment. You'd be standing before the Lord of glory who'd be calling your life to an account. So what you experienced was pre-mortem. You might have flatlined. You might have been in the hospital. You might have had no vital signs, but you hadn't died in the biblical sense. You might have died according to the doctor who's standing over you saying, well, this person has died. Maybe. I don't know. Such experiences are extremely subjective, but back to my original point, folks. Here's the point of today. Listen very carefully. Such experiences are completely subjective, but they are completely unnecessary in light of Scripture. Everything God wants you to know about heaven in this lifetime can be found in one place, the Scriptures. Again, this is the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scriptures. Listen, the world is going to run after those books. The world is going to go watch all those movies, and you can too. That's fine. Like I said, no big deal. No harm, no foul in that sense, but keep it in the category where it belongs. It's fiction, it's entertainment, it's over there. Don't you budge from this. You stay grounded on this. You plant your feet on this when it comes to the subject of heaven or any other subject. You stay grounded here. Does that sound good? So, in your sermon notes, you can go to the end of them. What are we to make of these near-death experiences? All of these people are claiming to have died and gone to heaven. Well, there are many possible explanations as to what they could be. Let me give you a few. First and foremost, they could be physiological responses, right? They could simply be physiological responses that happen to a person's body as it is under duress or is shutting down. The human body can respond in a million different ways when it is under stress, duress, or in any type of situation like that. You've all heard the account of the baby that's trapped under the car and the mom lifts this car, you know, a 97-pound woman lifts this car off the baby. The human body is amazing when it is under stress or duress. So when a person's body is shutting down, when they are approaching death, they could be in a rapid dream state. They could be dreaming. Now, let me ask you this. If a person has a dream on their deathbed, can God use that dream either to bring them to faith or stir their faith? Of course he can, but it's just a dream. It's just a dream. It is not a true account of the afterlife. It's a subjective dream that a person had. God can use it in their life, but we leave it there. It's a dream. It could be a white light for a whole host of reasons. As the brain shuts down, it's firing or it's not firing like it used to. It could see a bright light. There's lack of oxygen can cause that sort of thing as well, right? It could be a figment of one's imagination or simply a false memory. We've all heard sermons on end times and, and heaven and so on and so forth. So it's very possible that a person as they're shutting down, those memories are coming back to them and they're saying, well, heaven's like this. Well, you're saying that not because you're getting a vision of heaven, but because you've heard a lot of sermons on it. Okay, I'm just saying that could be one possible thing. The other thing is it could just be an hallucination, right? When you're in the hospital and you're dying, they pump you full of who knows what, right? Morphine. Yeah, your morphine-driven account of heaven might be awesome, <laughs> right? Hey, heaven, you know? But it might be the morphine talking. We don't know. There's no way to know. 
But I do know this, that if I stay here, I'm safe. If I stay here, I'm grounded. If I stay here, everything that God has wanted me to know about heaven is right here. Many people are suffering at the point of death from cancer and other diseases. And so when the body shuts down, it is not surprising that they feel an overwhelming sense of peace come over them. You hear this from Christians and non-Christians. Well, there was this overwhelming sense of peace. Well, of course, you've been suffering from cancer. You've been suffering from these things. It's the body shutting down. That's why we have so many non-Christians who reject Christ, don't want anything to do with them. They say, well, I had this overwhelming peace. Yes, maybe it's because the body's shutting down and the suffering that you've been experiencing is coming to an end. But don't be mistaken. Don't mistake that peace for eternal peace. Because the minute you die, you're going to be called to an account before the Lord of glory. And let me tell you this. He is glorious. He is majestic. So much so that the prophets and the apostles, when they saw God in his glory, Christ in his glory, could barely stand it. Isaiah. Isaiah was overwhelmed by his own ungodliness. John was going to fall as though dead. And again, listen, if someone has a dream about heaven, that's great, but it is, that's all it is. It is a dream about heaven. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, folks, this is very, very important because everybody's going to go home and have dreams about heaven tonight. Heaven is going to be far, far better than any dream you will ever have about it in this lifetime. I guarantee you. You want to know with all, with the problem with all the non-biblical accounts of heaven that are out there? Every one of them sells heaven short. And we're going to talk about this in the weeks to come. But folks, heaven is beyond your wildest imagination, better than your best expectation, and more glorious than you could ever give it credit for. Guaranteed. You could go get 20 shots of espresso at Starbucks, go up on South Mountain, and start thinking about heaven for the next 24 hours. And I guarantee you, you won't even come close to how glorious it truly is. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, No eye has seen, no ear heard nor the heart of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. Folks, go nuts. Let your wildest imagination go nuts. You won't even come close to how awesome heaven is going to be. You can't even come close. And we're going to be talking about that in the weeks to come. Okay, secondly, we, so they could be physiological responses. Secondly, they could be outright human deception by the person claiming to have gone to heaven. So not long ago, Tyndale House, the publishers of the book, The Boy Who Came Back From Heaven, a true story. It actually says it on the book cover. The boy who came back from heaven, a true story. Tyndale House was saddened and embarrassed as they publicly stated, quote, uh, we're saddened to hear that Alex, the six-year-old boy who claimed to have gone to heaven, is now saying that he made up the story of dying and going to heaven. Go figure. I'm going to tell you, incidentally, you're going to see more of this in the future, of these young children who claim to have had experiences they're going, I really believe that either two things are going to happen. They're either going to say that they had more visions of heaven and gone to heaven more, and they're going to write more books and make more money, or some of them are going to come out and say it didn't actually happen. That's one of the two ways that they're going to go. Remember, people will do or say just about anything if it will generate attention, generate money, or generate a following. Near-death experience books are the most lucrative books in the history of what we call quote-unquote Christian publishing. They are the most lucrative books in the history of Christian publishing. In many cases, it is the parents and the grandparents of the children who have claimed to have gone to heaven that are truly jiving the agenda, okay? And you're going to see many more of these books and movies coming out, folks. You want to know why? Because they are cash cows for the people who have claimed to have gone to heaven. Now, can you go see the movie? Sure, sure. Can you read the book? Fine, but keep it over here where it belongs. It's fiction, it's entertainment. I'm just going to kill a couple hours and, you know, whatever. Whatever you do, don't put it on par with this. The sufficient, all-powerful Word of God, right? Hebrews 12, 
4.12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Folks, let the rest of the world run off to those books and claim that's what heaven's like. You stay grounded here because you will be grounded in the truth and it will protect you in every way, shape, and form. Lastly, these visions of heaven that people are saying can be outright deceptions of Satan. And we talked briefly about this. Satan would love nothing more than to flood the market with versions of heaven that are anything but true. Again, a false view of heaven may seem innocent enough where little boys are being sung to by angels and other things and there's wings and halos, but the wings are too small. But I'm telling you folks, when, what that is, it, it is creating a God of our own imagination and a heaven to our own liking. Again, even if we could be certain that someone truly visited heaven, which outside of scripture is not possible, it would not be necessary. You and I don't need it because we have the scriptures to stand on. By the way, in many cases, these books end up promoting a false view of salvation. Again, in his book, Saved by the Light, Danny and Brinkley wrote this. Some see Jesus, some see Muhammad, some see Krishna. Everybody has a name for it. Nonetheless, it is still the same experience. Is it really? Contrast these words with these words. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You think these books are innocent? No. Contrast those words with those words. Folks, if you're here today and you're eager to learn about heaven, praise God, because we are gonna dive into this in the weeks to come, and we are gonna leave no stone unturned. But if you wanna know something about heaven, this is the first thing that you need to know about heaven, and it is this. There is only one way there, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ alone is the one who died for the sins of mankind. Christ alone is the one who rose from the grave. Christ alone is the one who offers eternal salvation in paradise with him for all eternity. To those that repent of their sin and turn to Christ in faith, trusting in him to save them, he will. If you've never trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, then let today be the day of salvation. Let the day, today be the day that you come to him and trust in him. And by the way, I always say this, I gotta say it again. What should surprise you? You tell this to anybody that challenges you on this. They're gonna say, how dare you as Christians say that there's only one way to heaven? What's your response every time? What should surprise you is not that there is one way to heaven. What should surprise you is that there is a way to heaven at all. God owes us nothing. The Bible says we are all sinners. We've all turned away. God in his justice and you want to follow a just God. A person says, well, I don't believe in a God that punishes sin. That is an idol first and foremost, but yes, you do. You want to follow a God that punishes sin and holds people accountable. You do. What you tell people is you shouldn't be surprised that there's only one way to heaven. You should be surprised that there's a way at all because God doesn't owe any of us anything, but he has sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. Listen, I started this message by saying that we are about to embark on one of the most exciting, encouraging, hope-filled subjects that you could ever study, and I mean it. We are just getting started. Next week, we're gonna talk about this. Where is heaven right now? Where is heaven right now? Where will heaven be in the future? And then we're gonna begin to unpack what is heaven truly like? So are you guys excited? So I hope, I know I was, little, I was so nervous about this message because I knew it was a tough one, but I had to build this foundation. Let me pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you, God, for your account of heaven. God, we need to only look to you and to your word. God, to know what heaven is like. God, we are grounded there. We are grounded in the scriptures. We plant our feet there. And God, in the weeks to come, we pray that you would refine us like fire. God, that you would strengthen us, that you would give us a glimpse of eternity. God, a heavenly perspective. And God, that that would transform our lives now. God, life is so short. God, let us live with the finish line in mind. 
And God, I pray for anyone here today that hasn't trusted in Christ, that today would be the day that they put their faith in him, coming to him with repentant faith, God looking to him to save them and forgive them. And God, he will. So Lord, we love you. As we leave here now, we leave in the power and strength of the Holy Spirit. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ and to the glory of God the Father. And the church said, amen. Faithfulness, 
ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.